Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. 
Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I think one thing the television, the Food Network has done is everything just looks so perfect. And I think people actually stress out that when we cook, it must be the way it is seen on television. And you know, my food changes from the word where my thought process was to why, where I end up. It changes completely because I enjoy the process and, and uh, that's how I feel cooking should be. Is like It doesn't have to be exact science. That was Meru Dalwala and Vikram Vij, who co-own two Indian restaurants in Vancouver, as well as a line of packaged gourmet curries in a food truck business. It's a story about where the love of food meets the love of family. But first, it's time to check in with Raina Javeri about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Hi. Today is creamy sauce day. I've spent many years <laughs> doing carbonara, alfredo, cacio e pepe. They often get grainy, and when they sit around for a couple minutes, they get kind of gluey. So we need to solve that problem, and that's why you're here. We're going to solve your stringy cheese problem with a solution that Marcella Hazan, the late great dame of Italian cooking, brought us. And what she does is add oil to some of the cheeses that don't melt easily, and goat cheese is one example. So we're going to do goat cheese with olive oil. So there's a little science, and that is goat cheese is an acid-set cheese and it makes those proteins bind together pretty hard so it's hard to melt. Uh, the olive oil essentially lubricates, helps to lubricate the proteins so they come apart and turn into a creamy sauce, mm-hmm. not clump up and get grainy. It's a great trick because one of the problems we have is that goat cheese is hard to melt and this trick lets us melt goat cheese. So our second trick for this recipe is to reserve three quarters of a cup of our pasta cooking water to uh, add into our sauce. And in this recipe, we use um, gemelli pasta, which are the little twirly twin pastas. And we also like to salt our pasta cooking water liberally since it's going to season not only the pasta, but also your finished dish. So we use about two tablespoons of kosher salt for four quarts of water. So we make sure the pasta is cooked al dente, and then we put our goat cheese mixture, arugula, and then add the reserved pasta cooking water and toss it until the cheese mixture is evenly distributed and the arugula just begins to wilt. And walnuts and chives to finish, right? Because you, you just can't help yourself. I can't help myself. And of course, salt and a little bit of red pepper flakes. So the two tricks, we're using some olive oil to make a creamy sauce and a little bit of pasta cooking water to bind that sauce together. Raina, thank you. You're welcome. You can find all of our recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now let's take some of your cooking questions to my co-host Sarah Moulton, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, it's time to take a few more calls. Are you prepared? Oh, I am so prepared. I knew the answer to that question. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the phone? Hi, this is Brad from Boston. Hi, Brad from Boston. Do you have a question for us? (laughs) Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Actually, I've heard Chris basically several times talk about the method for cooking steaks where you put it in a low oven on a rack and keep it there till the internal temperature is about 90 and then finish it in a hot pan. My question on that is when should you actually do the seasoning part of it? Before you put it in the oven or after you take it out and before you put it in the pan? Well, there's a step before I like to do, which is I take the steaks, I salt them on both sides generously, and I let them sit for a good hour to get them closer. They won't come to room temperature, but they'll take the chill off. And then I'll put them into low oven for about 20 minutes, 250 oven. And then 
when they hit 90, 95 internal, finish them in a skillet or on the grill. And if you wanted pepper at the end, fine. But we talked about this a lot in Milk Street. And we keep saying salt and pepper should get a divorce because salt and pepper have nothing in common. They're You've totally different. And salt's great because it'll actually go into the meat, help the meat retain its juices. So pepper is just a spice. And yeah. so if you like pepper, fine. You can use pepper at the end or you could use lots of other things. But that hour I find on a cooling rack is very helpful because it really will make a juicier, you, tastier you steak. Absolutely. It pl- yeah, and a tastier steak. It's or like two a, hours it, if you have the time. Yeah, exactly. Even four hours in the fridge. If it's a thick steak, you know, if it's just a half an inch or something, maybe not quite. But it points the steak up. It makes the steak taste more like steak. If you add the salt afterwards, it tastes like an afterthought. Now, I did speak to someone who recently wrote a cookbook. She said that anytime you're going to cook meat or protein, getting it closer to room temperature before you cook it, she claims in head-to-head tests, the results are much better, much juicier. Juicier. Yeah, she says juicier. So I don't know. It's something I need to test. Yeah. But the salt is really doing the heavy lifting. Salt is so important. Okay, great. And do you recommend this method for all types of steaks or any particular type? Thicker steaks, because like a skirt yeah. steak, which is pretty no, thin, right. you know, or a flank steak. Well, a flank steak could be thicker. but If it's, it's a half-inch steak, you don't need to do that. Yeah. But if it's an inch or thicker, yeah. especially a two-inch steak, it's a much better method. The thicker it is, the more trouble you're going to have with the outer part of it overcooking by the time the inside comes up to temperature. It's like a roast. You know, the center is pink and the outside's gray. With a very right. thin steak, it's all going to cook about the same time. Yeah, but yeah. definitely season every steak yes. before you cook it and preferably an hour before. And with more salt than you okay. think you need. Yes. So, <laughs> oh, anyway. gosh. Makes perfect sense. Thanks for calling. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring at one 855 That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jay Barkas from Hopkinton, Massachusetts. How are you? Hi, Jay. Hi. I'm fine, thank you. How can we help you? My mother used to deep fry haddock in cornmeal. That was the only coating she used, and it was a special kind of cornmeal that she had to get at a fish market. I think it was called bolted cornmeal. So I'd like to try doing that again myself, and I'd like to know just what kind of cornmeal I should look for. I don't know what bolted cornmeal is, but I would assume it's a very fine grain cornmeal, Yes, right? it is. It, was yeah. very, it had the texture of flour. Yeah, it's almost corn flour, corn. right. I wonder if that's what it Well, was. I think what they used to do is they would sift the flour, you know, through a cloth or a screen to hold back some of those portions of bran that would make it more coarse. That's what they used to do. And maybe they used to have cornmeal, do that with cornmeal as well. I guess you could sift it. I'm wondering, though, also, Chris, what do you think about throwing it, say, in a blender and whizzing it up? I wonder if you could almost use masa harina. I mean, just use corn flour, right? It's got a different flavor, but why not? Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask is my mother used to fry it in Crisco, and I'd like to know at about what temperature I should do that and what would be the best thing to fry it in today. Crisco's fine. Vegetable, a peanut oil is fine. You want a, an oil that doesn't smoke easily. That has a high, high smoke High smoke, smoke temperature. Point. I find if you get the oil to about 370 or so, but then what happens is, people don't realize this, you put the fish. food in, the fish, the chicken. And the temperature drops. The temperature drops right away to about 320 or 310. 
And what you don't want to do is return the temperature to 375 because that'll burn it. So you're actually okay. frying at about 320 or so, 325. That's the actual temperature of the oil. Right. Uh, and so that would work fine. You can also use, there's frying oil, you know, like coconut types of oil, other things they make for donuts, for example, peanut oil. Crisco actually makes a great frying oil when it's melted. Right. You know, that's interesting. I've never heard about it burning it when it comes back up to temp. I thought you were supposed to maintain it at the same temp. That's what people think. But if you actually put a thermometer in, as I have, you'll see a drop. Of but, course. But you don't want it to come back up to that temperature. You, you want to maintain it like 325 or something. Really? You don't want it 375. It'll burn it. That's not what we were taught in cooking school. <laughs> Sarah's <laughs> Which so is more like gonna, 365. You cannot see Sarah's face you right now. You maintain it at the same temperature. I know that's wrong, though, because that would be too hot. For Go, fish. For any frying. You start at that temperature, but you don't want it to come all the way back up. Trust me. Hmm. How many pieces could I fry at the same time, and about how long should I fry it? If I start at 370, and then, as you say, not try to bring it back up. It depends how big your pot is, how much oil you have. I mean, just you don't want to crowd the pan, obviously. You can pretty much tell by the outer coating when it's cooked. It's just going to be a few minutes. It's going to cook fairly quickly. You know, the other thing you can do, which I've done, is to fry it, but slightly under fry it. And then when everything's done, just put it back in for two seconds just to reheat it. If you do need to do it in batches, that's one way to go. Well, thank you very much. This yep. is very helpful. Thank you. Okay. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Meru Dalwala and Vikram Vij, co-authors of Vij's Indian, our story, spices, and cherished recipes. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. 
feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to Meru Dalwala and Vikram Vij, a couple who work together in the world of food, including restaurants, packaged foods, and cookbooks. Their latest work is Vij's Indian, Our Stories, Spices, and Cherished Recipes. It was an opportunity to ask stupid questions like what is a curry, as well as why different cultures use different herbs. India loves mint and cilantro, the Italians oregano and basil, and the French tarragon and thyme. I started by asking Meru when she moved to the States. Uh, Miro, you were born in India, and uh, mm-hmm. you moved to Washington. How old were you when you moved to the States? Just before kindergarten. Just so I started kindergarten in D.C. or uh, D.C., and then we moved to Maryland. But basically, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So what was it like going from India to uh, Bethesda or some outskirts of Washington? Quite different, I assume. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't really remember because I was young and it was just such a shock for me that the whole, I think, the move itself. So what I remember more is growing up in an Indian household with Indian smells, the Indian language. But then the minute I walked out that front door, I was in a completely different world. I was in the world of America, the world of English, the world of McDonald's, the world of school cafeterias. And uh, so for me, it was more of what was what were my two different worlds growing up versus comparing India to the U.S. when I moved there. Uh, Vikram, you, uh, I found this interesting. You trained as a chef and sommelier in Salzburg, Austria. Correct. I, uh, I actually wanted to be a Bollywood actor. 
But <laughs> my father said, no son of his is going to become an actor. So I said, well, what's the next thing I could do? I, I mean, I loved hosting people. I loved talking to people. I've always loved people as such. And I thought uh, we should flow the creativity through uh, cooking. So, you know, I had applied for a school in Austria and... Uh, I was one of those lucky ones that actually managed to get in there, even though I didn't speak a word of German. So I went to Austria, and actually, I never trained to be an Indian chef as such. Indian cooking, Indian food came naturally to us because our parents were Indian. Uh, you know, we we grew up in those spices, and obviously, you develop on things. But things that what we had actually learned was the French cooking, the French presentation, and obviously the pairing of the wines with Indian food was part and parcel and passion of ours. Okay, it's time for me to ask my stupid question, because in every interview I have at least one really big stupid question. What's a curry? You know, I mean, I know what a curry is, sort of, but I, I read your book, Vich is Indian, and... You know, I, I think the the idea of a curry from your perspective is much broader than what it is from mine. So could you just define, either of you, what really is a curry? So I think the word or calling Indian food curry comes from the Brits, and they would say, oh, I'm in the mood for curry. So curry became slang for Indian food. But in our world of the, of India and Indian food itself, Curry is Indian food, and every single meal is a different type of curry. Hmm. So if you say, hey, what's for dinner tonight? You'll say, oh, chicken curry, oh, lamb curry, oh, prawn curry. Curry, on its own, we say curry, uh, that refers to a yogurt dish. It's, it's yogurt and chickpea flour and turmeric and cumin. So just the word curry in our language refers to a very specific dish. But curry in itself as Indian food, I think the Brits came up with. And it's it, huh. and the other thing is within India we have so many different types of Indian cuisine. So northern Indian cuisine is different from southern Indian cuisine. It's different from central Indian cuisine. Um, here's a couple of quotes from Miro. This is from you. Quote: No point in stressing while cooking. The more you relax, the better the food, and the better your mental well-being at the end of a busy day. You know, it's funny. A lot of people view cooking as being the opposite of relaxation. So could you just talk about that for a second? Well, I, I noticed that. And every time I turn on television Food Network, which is not very often, but the two things I notice is how people now speak to me either at the restaurant or even, at you know, previous at my children's school. People don't even want to invite me and Vikram over for dinner because they stress out of, oh, no, what would we cook for them? And I think one thing the television, the Food Network has done is everything just looks so perfect on set. And I think people actually stress out that when we cook, it must be the way it is seen on television or even in cookbooks, that it has to look the way it looks in cookbooks. And it's a hard thing for someone like me to say, oh, don't stress. But I really do mean it. Like, do if you're stressing out, it's like an animal, not to be morbid, but the higher stress that animal is when you kill it, the less flavor that animal is going to have. And, you know, my food changes from the word, where my thought process was to why, where I end up. It changes completely because I enjoy the process. It's like playing music. It's like playing anything you want. You know, uh, you ask an artist that stands in front of a canvas what they're going to paint in the beginning to where it ends up is totally two different journeys. And, and uh, that's how I feel cooking should be. It's like it doesn't have to be exact science. Uh, in your introduction to the book, you talk a little bit about your marriage, and all marriages have their ups and downs. There was one quote from your daughter that was really poignant, and I just want to read this, and you can comment on it. And she was talking about chores, and she said, 
to, to both of you, I guess. You said that these weren't chores, but they were part of my teamwork for the family. That's a nice expression. And now my family just broke up and I wasn't even part of the team to decide this. I, I thought that was mm-hmm. really, really powerful. Could you just talk about that for a second? Oh, I remember she was in the bathroom when she said that to me. I, I chased her into the bathroom and she was just acting up. And I said, all right, Chonic, what's wrong? And she said it and I was just so floored. I can't even tell you because, again, it was just so true because that was what I was saying all the time. No, you know, part of the family team, part of the family team. And just the fact that she was so articulate about it, um, it, it floored me. But that was the sentence that then brought us together in terms of how we were going to handle the family and the teamwork with the separation. And that was the sentence that just was the foundation for me and Vikram that we realized that, all right, the marriage has changed. The marriage has separated. We have separated, but the family stays intact. Yeah, I thought that was just a lovely distinction. And and congratulations to both of you because you, you put that first. Um, There's some ingredients in the book which most of us are less familiar with, and there's just three of them I just wanted to mention. Nigella seeds, or is it kolonji? I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah, kolonji. And you see that a lot in the book. Could you you talk about that? Kolonji is actually a spice that's used for pickles in India. So most of the Indian pickles will always have kolonji because it imparted uh, strong flavors without being bitter, uh, unless it was overcooked. And so it's a beautiful spice, and uh, you know most of the carrot pickles or chili pickles, anything that requires a lot of strong flavors has kalonji and black cardamom in it, and obviously the cinnamon and the cloves. So we had gone to India a while ago, this is initially, and my sister's mother-in-law, uh, used to make this dish called kalonji chicken, which was like pickled chicken curry, basically. And uh, Miru, you know, learned it from her, and she came back and she put it on the menu and became really, really, really popular. Could you give me the 30-second summary of how you do this pickled chicken? I mean, is it done very quickly? Uh, how long does it take? How do you do it? Well, there's various ways to do it. So you heat up the oil. Let's just say canola oil right now. You just heat up that canola oil. You put the kalanji seeds in there. You sizzle the seeds for about 40, 45 seconds, and that kind of cooks the seed through. You let that cool. And then in a regular mason jar, you combine that oil, the kalanji seeds, salt, and some chilies. At a minimum, that's what you put in. After that, you can put in ground cumin. You can put in cloves if you want. You can put in uh, coriander. If you're vegetarian, you can just put in raw carrots. You can put in cauliflower. And then from there, you can add a teaspoon of sugar and build your pickle up. But at a minimum, just kalanji seeds sizzled in hot oil. Add red chilies, some salt, put in a mason jar with cauliflower or carrots or, um, or goat. The other ingredient, fenugreek. I, mm-hmm. I, was, I was reading a book a few months ago. It seemed like every other recipe had fenugreek in it. It seems to be all of a sudden, it's time for fenugreek for some reason. Leaves, the seeds, is it something that's becoming more popular? What does it taste like? How do you use it? Well, uh, our most famous dish uh, called the lamb popsicles has fenugreek in it. Fenugreek is actually methi, M-E-T-H-I. So it's like a coriander. So if you take the seed, it has the yellowish color to it. And once that seed uh, flowers, it becomes a cilantro, which is... 
um, fenugreek uh, leaves, and it's it's almost like a white green herb that grows wild in India. You get get little pieces of it, cilantro, methi, and there's so many different ways of using it. You can have it's it's a little bitter when it's cooked down because of the iron content in there. So you can have methi alu, which is you know just fenugreek leaves with potatoes. The way we do it at Vijis, for example, is it's called kasuri methi. It comes in a dried form. We roast them in the oven and with our hands, we just kind of grind it and it has great properties. Yeah, you've mentioned black cardamom a few times. Maybe for our listeners, could you just describe the difference between green cardamom and black cardamom? Well, green cardamom is is predominantly used in India for desserts. It's just it's an expensive cardamom. It's very elegant and it is used for, you know, the finishing touches. So if you were just sprinkling a little bit of cardamom on something or or cooking with it, it's it's very expensive. Is black cardamom is used in all the garam masalas and the blend of the heavier richer style. So the analogy would be is it's the cabernet franc of a bordeaux blend. You know, bordeaux blend has this Cabernet Sauvignon, it has the Merlot, but it needs that huge body and the structure, and that comes from Cabernet Franc. Same thing, Garam Masala loves a little bit of black cardamom in it to give that little smokiness and the and the, the bite that it requires. In your book, you talk about paneer, and you say there are tricks to making it just right. It's a little fussy. What is paneer, and what are the tricks to making it, and how do you use it? Well, paneer is probably the most popular form of cheese in India, and it's a delicacy, and it's a daily treat in every home that can afford it. It's it's cooked down milk. It's it's like a cottage cheese, like a slow cooked, separated. It's like though it separates the whey from the solids of the milk, and what's left over the solids is considered the paneer. But it doesn't taste like cottage cheese. It just has that. It can have that texture, and then you just uh, so then you just weigh it down, and it the thing with paneer is it doesn't melt. So you can boil it in your curries. You can make peas in paneer. You can spread it even. Like in my household, the girls would uh, take soft paneer, and we would spread it on toast and put honey over it. Hmm. Yeah, This was a recipe that really uh, struck me, green sautéed in brown sugar. You have some oil. You fry some spices. But you use, I think, a half a cup of brown sugar in that recipe. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you eat for healthy reasons. Sometimes you eat because you really just want to knock yourself out and go rich. And Vikram and I, we don't we don't really have these boundaries sometimes. So like you get the greens and it's just fun to get this powwow of different flavors. Um, I don't think any meal needs to just follow one line. You can have, you know, a lot of sugar in one dish. You can have super vegan healthy in one dish and you can serve them all together. And really, it's about enjoying in the end. You, If you don't enjoy it, what's the point? I mean, and that's where your power comes when you learn how to cook even the basics. And I do mean this is your self-power. When your hands are in control of the basics of cooking, then your hands and your body are actually in control of what you're going to be able to put in your body. But it is, in the end, about enjoying it. The two of you have been working together for a very long time. You still do have a family. After all of this time, are the two of you, have you arrived at the same view of cooking and food, or do you stand in different places? Oh, we're both smiling right now. You know what? Both, I would say. It depends on what day. Uh, maybe today we're both, you know, unified with, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But as I explained in that second cookbook, 
when I'm cooking, I'm a very thoughtful, uh, I, I go into myself cook. Vikram is a very robust cook and he needs to talk a lot while he's cooking. But at the same time, I think what Vikram and I share is the exact same attitude and understanding of cooking and food and the pleasures and the joys and the health aspect. What differs for us is the way we each go about it. So you can get two very, very avid readers, but one loves to read Middlemarch and the other one loves to read Shantaram. I bet you're the Middlemarch person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am. <laughs> Vikram, what, what are your favorite books? Shantaram starts with a bang and it finishes with a bang. So it's like you've come in and you had a nice glass of bubble to start you off with, then you had a nice glass of Riesling, then you had a Chardonnay, and then you end up with all, all through the flight. And Shantaram was like that. And that's always been my style of, of cooking and even being who I am. I have always loved robust flavors, robust things, even the way I dress, even the way I talk. It's just it's our nature. And I don't think one is right or the other wrong. Okay, we're going to end up with a, a little quick thing here. So it's uh, it's Tuesday night. Let's say uh, you have to get some dinner on the table reasonably quickly with a simple recipe. Mm-hmm. I'll start with you, Meru. What, what would you make for a, a, a fairly simple Tuesday night supper? If I've had a hard day at work, so the first thing I'll do is I will chop up onion. Let's say one large red onion. I will chop it up, saute that in either coconut oil or in ghee. I will add some garlic to that. I'll add a can of tomatoes to it or fresh tomatoes. If I have fresh tomatoes, I'll add a teaspoon of turmeric. I'll add a tablespoon of cumin. I'll add a tablespoon of coriander all ground up, some salt, a little bit of cayenne pepper, and then I will open up two cans of chickpeas, drain them, put them in there, and some water, bring it to a boil, and I've got my dinner. You know what I would do? The Hmm? first thing I would do is open up a bottle of wine, drink half of it, (laughs) and start thinking. And my first thing would be is I've got some pasta, because everybody does have pasta. I've got some tomato sauce, and I've got some meat or something like that. And I would cook tomato sauce with some spices, bolognese style, just add some meat to it, add some vegetables to it, boil the pasta on the side. Everybody has some parmesan or some form of cheese at home and sprinkle it on top of it and enjoy it because spaghetti is like having lentils and chapati and and pasta always goes well. Now, if you have a little salad, don't forget to have some with it because spaghetti bolognese is quite rich. And he does add spices to his spaghetti bolognese, believe it or not, and it's delicious. But he always has that bottle of wine around, though, right? So. That, that's always there. I, I don't think our children <laughs> even know what it's like to see somebody cooking without a bottle of wine on the counter. Vikram Mero, thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, meeting both of you, and, and best of luck. Oh, thank you. Pleasure. Yeah. Namaste. Bye. Bye. That was Meru Dalwala and Vikram Vij, co-authors most recently of Vij's Indian, Our Stories, Spices, and Cherished Recipes. You know, there are all sorts of couples. There are power couples, perfect couples, friendly couples, romantic couples, and then there are, of course, uh, married couples. As the saying goes, kissing don't last, cooking do. So there you go. Yet another reason to learn how to cook. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to regular contributor Dan Pashman of WNYC's The Sporkful Podcast. Dan, how are you? Good. How are you, Chris? What is it you would like to regale me with this week? Well, Chris, I've been thinking a lot about breakfast cereal lately. 
News reports are telling us that millennials are eating a lot less of it. One of my household's most beloved cereals, Product 19, just got the axe. It's been discontinued. And I'm just a little bit upset about this downturn in cereal joy that our society is experiencing. I'm actually quite fond of cereal myself. Are you a mixer? Do you mix different varieties together? No, but I ran into a guy when I was young. I somehow met this guy, French, and he used to love cornflakes, but he put a big spoonful of jam on it. And did he so, mix it in or he left it on top? He didn't mix it in, but he'd eat it with the cornflakes. That was his thing. It's obviously very French, of course. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so I, I actually sometimes take fairly bland cereal and add a scoop, a big spoonful of really good jam on top. I find that quite satisfying. That sounds really good. Wait, is there milk involved or is this dry cereal and jam? I hate to say it's almond milk usually, but uh, <laughs> I don't ask. But almond milk, bland cereal, and some sort of really good jam, yeah. But that's interesting because when you get a little almond flavor and you get the crunch of the cereal and yep. the jam, it's almost like a dessert bar of some kind. Yes, yeah, true. It's like a fruit bar or a Pop-Tart. Yeah, Exactly. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's true. So what do you intend to do about the demise of breakfast cereal? Well, I thought maybe you and I could team up, Chris, and help people to understand how glorious, and you've already taken a great step forward here with this amazing jam breakthrough, but I think that we need to help educate people on how great cereal can be and on all the wonderful things you can do with it. And I'm a big fan of mixing different cereals together. I think that you can almost think of cereals as ingredients that you can use to make something else. That's interesting. So give me a recipe. Well, I'll tell you the ingredients, okay? And you tell me what cereal you think this is. You ready? Yep. Apple Jacks, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and Crackle and Oat Bran. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like one of those fake health bars that have a lot of oh, that right. stuff in it that are yeah. 280 calories. Yeah. Right. <laughs> With the Apple Jacks, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and Crackle and Oat Bran, I was going for Apple Crisp. Yeah, that's good. Okay, that's good. Okay. And I got another one for you. You ready? Yep. Count Chocula or Chocolate Lucky Charms and Golden Grams. Oh, well, that's, yeah, s'mores, right? I mean, yeah. There you go. Exactly, right. Uh, one more for you. Frosted Mini Wheats, Honey Bunches of Oats, and a Nutty Granola. Well, Trail Mix, uh, something, I don't know. It's along those lines, but the vision I was going for, baklava. Oh, that's pretty good. You like yeah. that? That takes a lot less time to make, too. Right, yeah. right. You get, like, the Frosted Mini Wheats have that sort of straw- texture that you can get in certain types of the baklava configurations. Before we finish, we should take a moment just to appreciate the word frosted, which was a very magical term, you know, when you're eight years old with a big box of cereal in the morning. Absolutely. And it sort of conjures up images of snow. And, yeah. 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 Tony the Tiger. So going forward, if there is a paucity of breakfast cereals, you're just going to combine as many as possible <laughs> and go out with a bang. That or if not that, I I'm not giving up entirely. I'm going to try to reinvigorate the cereal movement. Another thing I think we can do is to encourage people to incorporate more crunch into their cereal because cereal soggage is a scourge. And I think that with a little bit of education, we can really combat it. You know, I think people can add things like whole nuts, small dark chocolate chips, to get more crunch, but they can also use a milk pouring technique that I call the single stream. You know, the typical way to pour milk into cereal, like you see in the commercials, there's always the spiral, and you know, you're, right. you pour the milk all around. You you almost have this OCD need to cover or coat the entire top layer of cereal. But I think that's problematic. Mm. Now you're getting it all wet all at once. I do what you do. You just pour it like on the side in one spot. Exactly. And why do you right. think that's better, Chris? 
because you don't sog out the cereal on top. Yes, and you maintain crunch until you're ready to enjoy it. You know, we've now reached a point where your mind and mine have melded. Um, a Vulcan mind meld, which is very disturbing. I'm starting to think like you. Give it a few more conversations, Chris. You're going to be wearing pajamas. You better watch it. <laughs> Eating whipped cream at 11 o'clock at night. Dan Pashman, thank you. I'm, we're both cereal lovers, and uh, I'll try your concept. Mix and match. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of the Sparkful Podcast. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Bolton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front-row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Right now, we're going to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Diane. And where are you calling from? I am calling from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I love Pittsburgh. Lovely town. How can we help you? Well, I was finally able to get my hands on some leaf lard from a local farm. How nice. Yeah. I wanted to substitute it for my pie crust, but I haven't had much luck, and I really don't know how to actually measure it. It came in a big hunk that was frozen, so I partially thawed it and then cut it up into smaller chunks. You have to render it first. You have to put it in a big pot. I use a little bit of water and then low heat, and you melt it, essentially. Uh, All the stuff you don't want sort of rises to the top. And then you can pack it into, you can get molds for it, you know, which are standard volumes like a stick of butter. Uh, Mm -hmm. But you can get standardized volumes, and then you can put it back in the freezer. But the first thing to do is to render it. Jeez. No, I don't have Um, a lot of experience with lard. (laughs) Yeah, and by the way, leaf lard, which is, as you know, the fat around the kidney of the pig, is Mm -hmm. fabulous because it doesn't taste like meat or pork at all. It really has no flavor. And it was the traditional fat to use in pie crust for a very long time. You said you had trouble, but it should make the flakiest pie pastry you've ever had. You well, tried it and what happened? Well, I used it without rendering it. <laughs> well, you should render it. But did you use it the same amount that you'd use a butter, like 10 tablespoons for a cup and a half of flour or something like that? I tried to fit it into my current pie crust, so I used half butter and half okay. leaf flour, but it didn't turn out right. Did you cut it in with a food processor or with a pastry blender or with a food processor. You said it didn't come out. It came out a little bit denser. It didn't come out very flaky. Hmm. But I think it was probably because my measurement was probably off and I didn't render it at all. I didn't know I had to do that. I would put the lard in first and process it for maybe five or ten seconds. But you're talking about the lard that you've rendered. Yeah, that you've rendered. Right, because that sounds like the biggest problem here. I throw the butter in the freezer after I cut it up for about ten minutes to make it very cold. And then I put that in the food processor until that's cut in. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Anyway, Is thank you. Is there anything else I could use it for other than pie crust? Yeah, actually, we've used it twice in the kitchen last week. We were doing Italian flatbread, piadina. Mm-hmm. We used olive oil, and uh, it wasn't that good. And someone suggested to go back to lard, which is what they used to use. And it was fabulous. Oh. It made it a little flakier and crisper and had a ton of flavor. And we also did a quick refried bean recipe. We had canned refried beans. We were just sort of, you know, tricking them up. And the lard Mm -hmm. added a tremendous amount of flavor. It makes things a little crisper, a little flakier, and also it adds flavor in some cases. So it's better than vegetable oil or olive oil in some recipes. Yeah. Wonderful. Great. I'm excited now. (laughs) Okay. I know I have to render it. Good. Well, it's really easy to do. It just takes a little bit of time. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Thank you so much. Take care. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring at one 855 That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hello. Who do we have on the phone? Alan Dignan. Hi, Alan. Where are you calling from? Prescott, Arizona. Nice. Well, what is your question today? It's about the foolproof single... Crust pie dough. Uh oh. Uh oh. I made the recipe a couple <laughs> weeks ago. I made two shells. The dough was beautiful to work with. When I took it out of the oven, two things I noticed. One, it did shrink a little bit. 
that wasn't much of a problem. But I noticed there were little dark black flecks in the dough, evenly distributed. When I served it, those little black flecks were like pieces of steel, very, very hard. Uh, the flavor of the crust was good, but there was all this very hard matter distributed throughout the crust. This is the recipe with cornstarch, right? Right. The only thing I can think of is, was the cornstarch not fully dissolved when you made the gel in the microwave? It was gelatinous. Right. When I added it to the uh, Cuisinart, it mixed fine. There was nothing that looked like that when you rolled before the dough it went in the oven. Let me ask you a question. What kind of pie tin did you use? A uh, black steel tart tin. That could be. Oh, I'm, I'm, what size were these specks in the dough? Very tiny. Like pepper Almost or something? Almost like a speck of pepper. Wow. I mean, I was just wondering if maybe it had to do with the tart tin. I've baked other crust recipes in these tart tins and haven't had a problem. Anything weird with your oven? It's a Viking stove, and I recently had the oven calibrated, so I think the temperature is pretty accurate. This is a stunger. You pre-baked this? I did, yeah. I baked them blind, and um, they were nice, golden-looking pie crusts, and they looked beautiful, except that I did notice when I took them out of the oven, these little dark flecks. I didn't think anything of it. What pie weights did you use? Actually, in one I used ceramic ones, and in the other one... Little metal ones. I lined it with foil and then right. put those in. I don't know. I think it's cocktail hour here at Milk Street. <laughs> I think we need to have a drink because I I never totally stumped. I can't. I can. Oh, underst- come on. I can understand why there'd be little yeah. darker spots or something. Yeah. No, this is bizarre. I can't remember. Was there any sugar in this recipe? There is sugar in it. Uh, I think. Do you use just regular granulated Two white sugar? Of sugar. And you use just regular granulated white sugar? Baker sugar. I don't. Uh, You know, I just don't know. I don't know. We're going to have to go back into the kitchen. and I'll call my food scientist tomorrow, and I'll see if I can get an answer, and we'll try to replicate it in the kitchen. I have no idea what this is going to be. I don't either. Okay. She must have something to do with the question. But, uh, okay, we have your information. Alan, we've got uh, our marching orders here. We have to go do something about this. Okay, well, I hope you come up with a thought, because I'd love to keep working with this. And I will try it again and see if it happens to me again. The only thing I can think of is just try a different tart pan or pie pan. Just try a different one, a lighter colored one, and see what happens. Yeah, well, I certainly could do that, yeah. Try that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring, one 855 bowtie That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. You can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also at MilkStreetRadio.com. This week's Milk Street Basic is about tomato sauce. For years, most of us have used olive oil in tomatoes. Makes a nice marriage. But here at Milk Street, we've now discovered that tomatoes have an affinity for butter. So here's the recipe. One 28-ounce can of tomatoes. Melt three tablespoons of butter in a skillet. Then add a quarter cup of grated onion. Saute the onion for just a few minutes, then add the tomatoes and cook until reduced to a sauce consistency. That would be about 10 minutes. Don't forget plenty of salt. For richer flavor, you can also add a tablespoon of tomato paste along with the onion. Now it's time to talk to Louise Gray, author of The Ethical Carnivore, My Year Killing to Eat. 
You know, there's no debate about eating meat if you're a vegetarian based solely on moral grounds. Most of us, however, eat meat without really too much thought. Now that leaves the middle, meat eaters with a conscience, which is what Louise Gray wanted to explore by hunting for her own food. Is there a right way, if not a moral way, to consume meat? So I, I love nonsense poetry, and I love quoting, so let me start with a quote. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize with sobs and tears. He sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. So my question, which which I think you had in your book and one of the chapter openers, my question is this. A lot of books have been written on the topic of eating meat, animals. Pigtails by Barry Esterbrook, for example, last year. And so there's a lot of pocket handkerchiefs and streaming eyes, but not that much has changed. So where is this headed? Are we going to have this conversation 25 years from now uh, with pretty much the same meat consumption and industry practices, or do you think we're on the cusp of something new? Well, I absolutely agree that we've been having this conversation for a long time. When I was doing my research for the book, I looked, you know, right back to Aristotle and Pythagoras, ancient Greeks who were worrying about eating meat. And then, you know, more recently, the Romantic poets, Shelley was a vegetarian. Um, And I did think the same as you. I thought, my goodness, we've been talking about this forever. But I do genuinely think we're on the cusp of change because industrial farming has reached uh, such a point of intensification that we're uncomfortable with it. And the difference is now that we know about it. You know, the internet means that we can all get the information. We can all see the the Peter videos. And I think we are uncomfortable. And I think we're reaching the point now where we will see a change in terms of of people being more ethical about the meat they eat and more aware of it. So when you set out to write your book, The Ethical Carnivore, you had a slightly different way of writing this book. Uh, and so w- what did you do? W- what was your concept? Well, I only ate animals I killed myself, right. which is a rather different approach, I guess. But it came to me because um, I was concerned about these issues we've been talking about, about uh, the environmental impact of meat particularly climate change, because I was an environment correspondent on a national newspaper, and I was writing about what a threat climate change is. And I knew that the easiest thing we can do is stop eating meat. But I'm also a farmer's daughter. I come from the countryside, and I could see that there are ways of farming which fit in with the landscape, provide jobs, and the animals, to me, look well looked after. So I started saying... um, Almost as a joke at dinner parties, I only eat animals I kill myself. And I just got this extraordinary response from people. And I realised that there is a real hunger to know where meat is from. And as a writer, there were a lot of unanswered questions. So I felt I had a responsibility to look into it. You know, I I always think a lot of food choices come down to price. You know, back uh, 100 years ago, Fanny Farmer's Day, uh, people were spending 30 to 40 percent of their income on food. Today, it's 5 or 6% in the United States, and meat is cheap. So do you think that's part of the formula here? Is It's just very inexpensive, uh, and so people will continue to eat it since it's so, so cheap. Yeah, I absolutely think that's the case, and I think I'm one of the few people who says this openly, you know, that um, <clears throat> we should probably pay more for our meat. It's very difficult for 
celebrity chefs and other people to say it without sounding elitist. But I think if you do talk to nutritionists and economists, they'll argue you can still get enough nutrition from um, a small amount of good meat so you can save the money by buying less. Um, so I think we should be a bit more open about that, you know, because it is difficult for a farmer to raise cattle to a high standard for very little money. And, and we've got to face up to that fact. What's the crust of stun for stunning lobsters? You, you talk about seeing this in a commercial operation. Uh, how does it work and why do they do it? Well, they use it in kitchens to stun crabs or lobsters before killing them. And um, I d- describe it as a, like a toasty machine. I don't know whether you have them in America, but, you know, you put the um, lobster or the crab in the water and then um, an electric current passes through it and, and kills it. And apparently in a lot of uh, restaurant kitchens, the chefs do request them now because they prefer that from having, you know, to kill them with a knife or throwing them in boiling water. Talk to me about Temple Grandin. There, there was a powerful thing you mentioned in, in a scene in a film, and she sees a cow slaughtered and cries out, where'd he go? Could you just ex- yeah, explain that? Yeah, I don't know if you've seen that film. I'd recommend it to anyone. It's really um, an amazing performance by Claire Danes, who plays Temple Grandin. She's an autistic woman, doesn't have much sense of other people, and just shouts, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And I actually thought, that's what I thought. I think that's what we all think in a way. We just don't say it. We don't we don't know where one goes after that moment. And I talked to her about that actually. Um she was quite interesting on um you know one of the few women I spoke to who's done the very difficult job of of slaughtering animals and she and she sort of changed the subject and said I just do something as to the best of my ability and try to improve the world as I can, you know. (laughs) That's the only answer, really. I mean, she can't answer where'd he go. None of us can. And she's also helped design slaughterhouses, is that right? Yeah, yeah, she she has. I think um, the majority in the U.S. now will have been influenced by her. And one of the great things she says is we all have different ways of seeing the world and different minds, and it takes all of us to understand the world. Hmm. It seems to me that in the last 10 years we started to come to an understanding that animals are a whole lot smarter than we thought. They sometimes don't have the vocal equipment to communicate the way we do. Uh, they don't have fingers, so it's hard to use tools. But, but actually, they're quite intelligent. So if we get to the point where we, or animals and humans don't seem to have a large gulf between us in terms of intelligence, however you want to describe that, Does that change this equation? I think we've got to be open to ongoing research and ongoing debate. And I'd agree with you that we've learned a lot in in recent years and we can certainly have, I would hope, a more sympathetic and ethical approach to animals. But at the same time, we've also, maybe we've got all the science, but, you know, in the past, we understood animals, we respected them perhaps even more because we work with them. So we've always had this respect and love, but then we also eat them. (laughs) And I don't know (laughs) whether I came up with an answer to that in my book, but I accept that in the book and try to do it in the best way possible. I think you summed it up. I mean, (laughs) you know, we love and respect them and we eat them. I just thought that was, 
you know, it, it sounds funny, but it's not. It, it, it is actually the heart of the matter, right? I mean, on some level, it, it's almost, it's a contradiction that is so insane and it, so hard to describe that, that you almost are left speechless. Exactly. It's such an insane contradiction. And really, you know, when I was writing this book, I was constantly thinking, how can I do this? Because it makes no sense. And a word that I didn't really use in the book, we haven't used in this conversation is hypocritical, because I don't think it gets us anywhere. But it, it, it can, it can really appear like that. But I think if you if you just say you're a hypocrite, if you say you care about animals and then eat them you just stop the conversation and if we just say oh my goodness it's insane and don't talk about it then we'll never get anywhere that was louise gray author of the ethical carnivore my year killing to eat that reminded me of my childhood in vermont yes i grew up hunting deer mostly but also rabbits and occasional wild turkey And I do eat what I kill at the annual April Game Supper. Now, I do have great respect for anyone who does not eat meat based on moral grounds. There's simply no argument. But for the rest of us, I wonder if a bit of personal experience might indeed be a good thing. So I leave you with the words of Henry David Thoreau. We cannot but pity the boy who has never fired a gun. He is no more human, while his education has been sadly neglected. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive Producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender Producer Amy Padula Production Assistant Carly Helmetog Senior Audio Engineer Douglas Sugars Senior Audio Editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis Audio Mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media Production Help Debbie Paddock Theme Music by Tubob Crew Additional Music by George Brandel Egroth Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.